My name is Hugh, and I'm one of the pastors here at TCC. Uh, it's my responsibility to oversee our small group ministry here at the church. And so if you're new with us or been visiting for a little bit, I hope you're getting lots and lots of invitations to our, our small groups because we really believe in their importance and our need for them. I'm thankful to get to serve uh, with some other brothers on this pastoral team, thankful to sit under their faithful teaching week in and week out, and I'm excited to, to teach this morning. Uh, if you will, go ahead and turn to Mark 14. We're going to be in verses 12 to 26. Mark 14, verses 12 to 26. Our text this morning is all about a sovereign and merciful God. The background to our text which is vital to understand where we are in Mark. The background is also all about a sovereign and merciful God. The opening phrase of verse 12 says, And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb. Here's what this is about. This unleavened bread, the, the Passover lamb. You go back 2,500 years. 3,500 years. Joseph and his brothers, they had acted in treachery. They sold him into slavery, but God used their ill for his good. Had Joseph imprisoned in, in Egypt, but he was brought up and became Pharaoh's right-hand man. And when famine broke out in the land, God used Joseph to save Israel, to save the world. It says in, in Exodus chapter 1 that under Joseph that, that Israel flourished. They multiplied greatly so that they filled the land. But then a king rose up that did not know who Joseph was, did not know what he had done to save Israel and Egypt. And he looked around and he sees the multitude of Israel, that they are filling the land and he says, this is not good. We need to imprison these people. And that's what he did. 400 years, Israel was in Egypt, much of that in slavery. And the people began to cry out to God, save us, free us, give us redemption. And so God, he rose up Moses, a man of Israel, but also of the house of Pharaoh, adopted into that house. And he's called out by God to set his people free. And so each time Moses would go to Pharaoh, Moses would, would make the, the appeal, set my people free. And Pharaoh would say no. And so God began to send these plagues onto, onto the land. And each time Pharaoh would relent and then he would take it back. Until finally it came to the tenth um, and final plague. Um, instructions were given, I think Donnie read it this morning, uh, in Exodus 12. Instructions were given from Moses to Israel to have this feast. It was to take place um, on a particular night, in a particular manner, in a manner of preparation. Exodus 12, 12 says, For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast." And on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you 
on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This is the background of our text. For 1,500 years, Israel had been keeping this feast. Every spring on the appointed day, they would, have, they would have a lamb. They would sacrifice it for their household, and they would remember God's faithfulness. They would remember the exodus of how he brought them out of slavery and freed them. The exodus is of massive importance in understanding the Old Testament and the Jewish mind. It's the basis of Exodus 20 when Moses comes down off the mountain with the Ten Commandments. It begins, I am the Lord your God who delivered you from slavery in Egypt. We can't overestimate it. And for 1,500 years, each year, they would sacrifice a lamb and recount God's faithfulness. They would see again and again that there was a substitute whose blood was shed for their deliverance. Something had to die. Something had to give its life to preserve theirs. I want to make three points from our text in Mark 14 this morning. The first one is, God is sovereign. Point number one, God is sovereign. Let's pick back up in Mark 14, verse 12. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, Where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. And wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where is my guest room? Where I may eat the Passover with my disciples. And he will show you a large upper room, furnished and ready. There, prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. Now, we don't know if, if Jesus had made prior arrangements with this man or if this is simply another exercise of his sovereignty. Whatever the case, he sent the two disciples out, and the text says they found it just as he has said. They found the man. They do as he says, and they found everything as he described it. So they get up into the room. They're preparing to have the meal. The meal is not going to be like at a table like we're accustomed to. They're going to be lounging um, kind of lying close to the table. It's Jesus and the twelve, and there are likely other people there in the room. And then we pick it back up in verse 17. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve, and as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. How ironic that this meal that is meant to call to mind God's faithfulness, his victory over the Egyptians and their redemption of Israel, it begins with this prediction, this announcement of betrayal, of treachery. And he tells them, tells them one of you will betray me. Now this is stunning. Consider what we've been through in the Gospel of Mark. Three times Mark records for us that Jesus told his disciples the Son of Man is going to be delivered up, he's going to be killed, and he's going to rise again. Each and every encounter he has with a religious leader, he shuts them down. He's not making friends in high places. There are enemies 
all around Jesus. And he's in Jerusalem. He's in the hornet's nest. And he says, one of you will betray me. This is, this is shocking. Now, Jesus knew specifically that it would be Judas. He knew that. He wouldn't be caught off guard by him, but the disciples had no idea. And so that's why they respond in verse 19. They begin to ask one another, is it, is it I? Surely not I. Am I the one? And in verse 20, he, he gives some clarification. He says, it is one of the twelve, one who is dipping the bread into the dish with me. This clarification is not meant to put the spotlight on Judas. Okay, just put yourself in, in the room. Jesus makes this statement, one of you will betray me. That's not a, a point where someone reaches out and, hmm, really, let me, let me have some of this food. This is somber. This is shocking. He's just dropped a bombshell. He's zooming in. He's focusing. He's saying, the enemies, the, the ones that you think would come after me, no, they're off the hook. Even these folks that are in the room, they're not the suspects. It's, it's only the closest 12, the closest companions. They are the suspects. They're the closest ones. Everyone else is off the hook. God is sovereign. Jesus knows exactly what is going to happen, and he knows who is, who is going to make it happen. Secondly, point number two, if you're taking notes, God is sovereign, but also see number two, that man is responsible. Man is responsible. Verse 21, Jesus says, For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. See clearly the elements of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility put side by side here. God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. The Son of Man goes as it's written of him. As in, God the Father has foreordained what the Son will do, how his days will end, what his ministry will look like. It will pass. It's written of him, and it will come to pass as an exercise of, of God's sovereignty. And Jesus has resolved that he will keep his Father's mission. We're going to see later in this chapter, in the coming weeks, that he's praying in the garden, not my will, but yours be done. And the Father has willed that, that the Son die a criminal's death. And the way that he has willed it to happen is at the hands of men. The Son of Man will go as it's written of him. He will. But this demonstration, this exercise of God's sovereignty and his perfect ruling does not in any way remove responsibility from us. Simply affirming that God is sovereign does not make us puppets on a string. This kind of notion is where people say we have no real freedom. We simply do what's foreordained of us. We're powerless to do otherwise. If this is the case, then God is the author of human sin, and this cannot be. This cannot be. Jesus is clear. He says that man is indeed responsible. Judas is not forced to make some decision. He's not acted on by God, but he's freely acting against God. He's making a choice, and he made the choice to betray Jesus. He was sinful, 
wicked, and he chose silver over Jesus' life. The cross here is a great example of how divine sovereignty and human responsibility go hand in hand. Jesus' death was prophesied. We see in Daniel 9 that the Messiah is cut off. In um, Zechariah 13 that the, the shepherd is stricken. And we are all familiar with the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. All these prophecies show clearly that the Messiah would be delivered up. It is written of him and it will come to pass. And the way God chose it to pass is by human hands. Judas is guilty. We'll see next week that Pilate is guilty. We all are guilty. Before we can ever see the cross as something done for us, we have to see it as something done by us. There are no human hands that are innocent here. We'll see weeks later after this account, after Christ has been resurrected and Peter is preaching to the crowd in Pentecost, he says Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Divine sovereignty and human responsibility are together here. And we have to admit that there's something of a mystery how these two work together. Charles Spurgeon was once asked, how do you reconcile this contradiction? What do you do with that? And he replied, I never have to reconcile friends. Divine sovereignty and human responsibility have never had a falling out with each other. And I do not need to reconcile what God has joined together. Where these two truths meet, I do not know, nor do I want to know. They do not puzzle me since I have made up my mind to believing them both. Church, this, this is what the Bible teaches. There are parallel train tracks through the scriptures of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. Sadly, many people try to master this. And what it costs is they will either remove man's responsibility and say he has no freedom or They will say God is a little God and he is not sovereign, that he is learning and adapting and growing. We cannot tolerate this. God's sovereignty and man's responsibility are together. And in our passage here, how much like God is it to take the greatest act of human treachery against him and turn it for our salvation? Who but God can do this? And Judas is for us a terrifying example. Terrifying. Three years, he's he's with Christ. Not just hearing him teach, but spending time seeing him live. How many of us spend years sitting under the teaching of the gospel? How many of us are deluded into thinking that we are the real deal, or we work so hard at looking the part, but we have a heart far from God. We need to know that judgment is real. We will be held accountable for our lives. No one else will be called to give account. Only us. And the way this verse ends in 21, the Son of Man goes as it's written of Him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. This is not just 
This woe is not just for Judas, the the worst human. This, apart from mercy, apart from God's grace, this is true of, of you and I. Woe to us. It's better for us that we're never born apart from God's mercy. God is sovereign. Man is responsible. Thirdly, I want us to see that Jesus is the only hope for sinners. Let's pick back up in our text in verse 22. And as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and he gave it to them and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Jesus is leading these men in this, the last Passover meal. He's instituting the Lord's Supper. Jesus is going to clarify the meaning of this meal. He's going to point to its true meaning. He breaks the bread and says, this is my body. These men know that he's speaking representatively and not literally. I can take my phone out, hold up a picture of my family, and all of you, when I say this is my family, you, you will understand what that means. This is true of every language. None of you will think, your phone is your family? It, it doesn't make sense. These men know exactly what he's talking about. He's saying, this is my body. It means this is my person. This is my entire being, my entire self. The significance is that Jesus is saying, I'm giving myself wholly and without reserve. The point of this Passover meal is to put the focus on God and his faithfulness, but Jesus is saying, there's a greater meaning, and it's about me. All of these previous Passovers, 1,500 years, they've all been in anticipation of me. Each of these meals foreshadowed his life and his work, and Jesus is making that clear to these men. For this Passover meal, there would have certainly been a lamb. But Mark, in his description, he makes no mention of it. He says there's, there's the bread and the cup. There's no mention of the lamb. This is intentional. The focus is not on the lamb on the table. The focus is on the lamb seated at the table. Every single lamb sacrificed through the centuries was a picture of this lamb. Of this lamb, John the Baptist declared, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Peter said, You were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Jesus is the lamb. Next, he takes the cup and giving it to them, they all drink of it. Mark is the only gospel writer that, that adds, they all drink of it. This is significant because the all echoes through the rest of the chapter. Verse 23, they all drink. Verse 31, they all swear allegiance to Jesus. Verse 27, they all fall away. And verse 50, they all fled. There may only be one traitor in the formal sense at this meal, but by dawn, all these disciples will betray Jesus from fear and cowardice. Surely not I, they all said. This, the very first Lord's Supper, is um, 
It's attended by traitors and cowards. It is a table not of merit, but of grace. That table and this one today before us, it's not a table of merit, but a table of grace. And he says of the cup, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. In Jewish mind, the life of a creature was in its blood. Therefore, Jesus' reference to the cup as, as his blood is, again, another reference to his very life. The blood of the covenant can't be understood apart from what happened back in Exodus where the law is given and then Moses makes the sacrifice and he's throwing the blood onto the people. But here there's a new covenant that was promised in Jeremiah 31 and instituted before us. The new, this new covenant will be sealed by Jesus' blood. Leading Paul to say in 1 Corinthians 5, Christ is our Passover lamb. This blood is poured out for many. Poured out for many. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. This covenant is an amazing promise from God. All of humanity has rebelled. All of humanity is due the just judgment of God, what we have deserved, and that is death. But God is rich in mercy and offers us life and grace. And this life is available by trust, confidence, and a substitute in Christ, that spotless lamb, that he lived the life that we should have lived and he died the death that we deserve. This is the new covenant, the covenant of his blood. And this believer is the only hope we have, that he really died while bearing our sins and that he really rose from the grave. And God knows how desperately we need to remember this truth. That's why 1,500 years Israel did this. That's why he told, um, he told the church in Luke, Luke's account of this, this text and, and Paul's accounting of it in 1 Corinthians 11 to take this supper to remember. It's why we have it the first Sunday of every month. We need to remember. God knows how often we need to rehearse, to be reminded, to remind one another that Jesus died in our place. We're frail and forgetful, and we need that. We need to remember that our, our sin is no small thing. And we need to remember that we are loved lavishly in the gospel. Grace needs to be reminded to us that it's so amazing that we get to sing about it. In a moment, we're going to take the Lord's Supper together. Paul gives some clear instructions in 1 Corinthians 11 should be up on the screen. Paul says, I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this in, as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And then Paul adds, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. 
For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. I want to give us three points of application before we take this supper together. The first one is the Lord's Supper. It should prompt us to have a perspective of looking back in remembrance to what the Lord has done. The point of taking the supper is to remember that Christ's body really was broken. His blood really was shed. This good news is what has saved us and what is is saving us. Hebrews 10, 14, By a single offering he has perfected all the, for all time those who are being sanctified. In other words, he, by this gospel he has perfected and is perfecting the saints. The work of Christ has saved and is saving us. We need it as much today as we did when we were cut off from Christ before we had faith. It's why we sing, O to grace, how great a debtor daily I'm constrained to be. Taking this supper is an enacted confession of our heart. How badly we need Christ. How desperately we need His grace. We remember this sacrifice in order to fight for holiness. We have to fight for it because we're such sinful creatures. All of our sin is simply wrong worship. It's not that we stop worshiping Christ and start worshiping something else. We are simply worshiping wrongly. And so we need to have our our eyes turned back to Christ to be reminded again, to see with clarity His majesty and His beauty. This is what led uh, Puritan pastor Thomas Chalmers to write uh, about Christ as the expulsive power of a new affection. The only way to take away a man's affection is to give him a greater affection. The only way to fight our sin and put it to death is by looking to Christ, believing that he is more satisfying, more joy-giving, more life-giving than any other thing. Amazingly and humbling to me, uh, my little brother just published a book. It's called... uh, Look and live. And he's going to make this argument that there's only one addiction in life that can set you free. Being addicted to that gaze of looking on Jesus. We have to look to Jesus' supremacy and be overwhelmed by his glory before we can find true freedom from other addictions. So the supper is a reminder to us to what he has done, to who he is, his greatness And know that we cannot love sin and Jesus at the same time. Now Paul adds, he says, you have to examine yourself. He says, you cannot take the supper in an unworthy manner. Thank God he doesn't say you can't take the supper if you're unworthy. None of us are worthy. He says, don't take the supper in an unworthy manner. Now what does that mean? I think taking the supper in an unworthy manner is to take it in the belief you don't need it. Taking the supper in an unworthy manner is to take it in the belief that you do not need it. Now, here's how that's played out. Taking the supper, if if you don't need it, it would be for an unbeliever to take the the supper. When we take of the bread and and of the cup, we are saying this is a picture of our vital union with with Christ. It's It's the gospel in picture. This is 
what we believe. This is how he has saved us. This is only the the testimony. This is only the hope of a believer. So an unbeliever should not take the cup. Each and every week, a conversation that Holly and I have with Lainey and Maddie, they say, Daddy, we want a snack. And we have to tell them, this is, this is not a snack. This is, this is for those that have placed faith in Christ. And we look at them and we say, Jesus' body was broken for you and his blood was spilled for you. And we want more than anything for you to believe this with your whole heart. So parents, for, for those of you that have young kids, take the opportunity to explain the gospel again. And if your child has, has not yet placed faith and trust in Christ's life and work, then the time is not yet for them to take the supper. The table is also for those that are actively living in sin. If, if it's an, a confession of, I need you, Jesus, then if you're living in sin and, and you have unrepentant sin, the table is not for you. It's for weak and consistent and gross and ongoing and repeated sinners. It's for all sinners except unrepentant sinners. We can't love Jesus and sin at the same time. The table's not for you. It's an unworthy manner. If you come to the table, you're convinced that you have arrived. Think through Jesus' parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. The Pharisee praying, I've done these great things and I give to the poor. And God, I'm not like this tax collector over here. Thank you that you've not made me like him. And the tax collector, so broken in his sin, beating his chest, so he won't even look up to heaven. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Jesus says he's the one that left justified. This time of the year, people ask the question, what do you get for the guy that, that has it all? Well, if spiritually you have no need in your soul, you have no deficiency, you don't need Christ, then the table is not, is not for you. Fourthly, it's uh, taking the supper uh, in an unworthy manner if you, have, if you have no regard for the church of God. And this is actually going to hinge into our, our second perspective. It, the perspective of the Lord's Supper should cause us to look back in remembrance, but it should also push us to look around to one another in fellowship. The passage I read from 1 Corinthians 11, the context of what's happening there in the church There is gross abuse over the Lord's Supper. The church would gather together for a full meal in taking the supper. And those that were wealthy, they were bringing all kinds of food just for themselves. And while there's a whole other section of folks with hungry, grumbling stomachs just looking on. Paul says, what are you doing? You are totally missing the point. He says, you're despising the church of God. Do we not do the same thing when we look around and we see that man or that woman and all we can think of is what he did to me? She never apologized. I'm not going to go to them until they apologize. This, This cannot be. The Lord's Supper is for the Lord's body and it's a picture of our unity and commitment together. 
And the gospel calls the offender and the offendee. Go, make it right. Do not despise the church of God. Don't allow for divisions and factions. Go make it right. Don't do injury to the body. The third perspective is that the Lord's Supper should cause us to look ahead in hope and worship. We look back in remembrance, we look around in fellowship, and we look ahead in hope and worship. And this is what Jesus is talking about in, in Mark 14, how the, the text ends, that where he says, of the cup, he says, that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. One day all wrongs will be made right. There will be no more tears. One day our faith will be sight. One day we will be with our Savior for eternity and we'll celebrate with a meal. That's what we have ahead. And at this meal there will be um, all the adopted sons and daughters of God hosted by Jesus himself. This should prompt hope and encouragement and confidence. It should keep us going, not to stop. Traditionally, this Passover meal, it would conclude with a singing of Psalm 118. And I want us to read it together. Psalm 118. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. For His steadfast love endures forever. Let Israel say, His steadfast love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say, His steadfast love endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord say, His steadfast love endures forever. We see in our text this morning a sovereign and merciful God whose steadfast love endures forever. In a moment, they're going to play some music. Let me challenge you to Follow Paul's words. Pray and examine your own heart, lest you come to the table in an unworthy manner. Come to the table with a heart boasting in the confidence of what Jesus has done for you, his body broken for you, his blood spilled for you. If you need to go to someone in the body to to reconcile, by all means, do it first. Let's pray together and then the the table will be open to you. Lord Jesus, we are so grateful to be called yours. To be sons and daughters of God adopted because of your work, of your life, So desperately, we want to respond to your gracious love and mercy in a worthy manner. Knowing that we do not begin by the gospel and continue our Christian life by by works, but we are debtors to grace each and every day, all of our lives. We celebrate and thank you that you laid down your life for us, that Jesus, you who knew no sin became sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in you. Pray that you, Holy Spirit, would 
as an act of your kindness and mercy to us, put the spotlight on our sin that we could throw it off and repent and find hope in our time of need. Thank you for being rich in mercy and grace. Thank you for loving us first. We love you. Amen. There are tables at the front and a couple at the back. The table is open to you.